And now, for the moment that our Aussie listeners have been dreading for years, Brian and Eric saying common Australian phrases with terrible Australian accents. Well, uh, I'll be honest with you. I almost couldn't be bothered to do this little segment right here. Yep. Uh, this is my shout of beers, and you can get the next shout. Oh, you know why? Because you're my mate. That's right, we're mates. We're mates when we met at uni, actually. That's not true at all, is it? We, we met when we were working. Yeah, you know what? Oh, it's a bit sus, it is. You, you, you sussed it. It's just suspicious. You're sus. That hey, you story. got me. You got me. But you know what? No dramas. No dramas. No worries. No worries. All right. Right, right. Yeah, but, you know, I'll tell you, though, that lie. You know what that was? It was a beaut. It's an absolute oh, beaut. Oh, what a beaut that was. Oh, that lie was a beaut. Oh, bloody oath, that was a beaut. Well, you know what? I'll be thinking about that tomorrow when I'm having my brekkie. But you know what? I'm glad we're both very sophisticated individuals and that we're not bogans, you know. Oh, Brian. Oh, Brian. Oh, quit mucking around. Oh. I can't be mucking around. I'm too naked. I'm too naked to be mucking around with you about that. Well, you know what, Brian? Maybe you should just take a sickie from this episode then, eh? Nobody says that, Eric. Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I'm Eric Brickmont. Hello, sir. How are you doing? You know, doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, so first of all, let's <laughs> first of all let's, the hate mail. Let's just address yeah, let's, the fact that there's going to be a lot. Yeah, of hate actually, mail. I was gonna, actually going to ask if you do that first. Well, first, <laughs> um, obviously, um, Sarah Ashley is not in tonight. She was actually she got sick today at the last minute. Bum, we bum, feel bum. terrible that she couldn't be here. We normally would do the two episodes in one night. We're going to do just one episode, Eric and I, and then she'll be back in the next episode because of that. So she's going to go. miraculously feel better and then just show up in the next episode. Totally. I think before we jump into the main topic, I know normally we do feedback at the end of the episode nowadays, but I'd like to address some of the presidential episode feedback that we got because there are some corrections. And I think that we, I just want to lead off with those because uh, it's important that we get those correct and then we'll jump into the main content. Is that okay with you? Absolutely. Okay. So first of all, uh, regarding the electoral college, we got a couple piece people uh, in fact, Evan Schumacher, one of our friends and uh, and now enemies, guests. no enemy. He's an enemy now. He's an enemy, enemy of the podcast. How dare um, he? How dare he? He's not an enemy us. until he creates his own history podcast. He's a liar. He's, he's a liar, and the whole feedback system is rigged. It's rigged, and he's a liar. So um, I was half right. So Oregon no longer um, divvies up their electoral votes. They are a winner take all state. However, there are two states that do still divvy up their electoral votes. Maine is um, one of both them. Maine and Nebraska. Um and I totally knew that and I don't know why I didn't catch it earlier in the last episode. I think I was just yeah. tired. And so the way those states essentially work is they have um they divvy up their states. I mean as as all the electoral votes are given, they're given for each representative you have in the house representatives in each that you have uh, in the Senate, right? So everyone has at least a minimum of three uh, electoral votes. Because, for example, Rhode Island is so small that it only has one representative in the uh, in the Congress, or at least it used to be that way. I'm not sure if, it, if they have enough population now to get a new one. Um, those are divided up that way, but then there's also certain districts that actually have laws in place that say that their electoral vote has to go toward... 
how that congressional district votes. Right. So in the cases of Maine and Nebraska, I believe there's one in Nebraska that can go toward its 20th district, and I think there's two in Maine that can go toward their uh, toward how their districts uh, choose to vote po- uh, uh, by the popular vote. So in other words, if they if a candidate wins in that if say for example you have you know the state going democrat electorally but the republican won in one of those districts that electoral vote goes to that candidate um now guys if you correct me on the numbers <laughs> the proportions i got uh you're just being nitpicky because i essentially got it down so there okay the second piece of feedback the second correction we got again from a couple of listeners one who decided to leave us a voicemail and one who very I think much more tactfully send it to us through uh, email. Uh, the Lincoln-Douglas debate um, was not a presidential debate. It was a debate for the United States Senate. Abraham Lincoln, keep in mind, when he was elected to the co- to the presidency, he was a congressman from Illinois, and he had tried to run for U.S. Senate and had failed to do that. Um, he lost to Douglas in that regard. Ultimately, it didn't matter, though, because that debate got him um in the national scene and is considered a historic debate because debate because it was his first real recording of rhetoric that we have uh, of him so that's why it's a significant one but it is not technically a presidential debate nevertheless the significance of political debates in general i think the significance of that debate still stands even though we said it in in the wrong context my apologies for those and Eric apologizes because he's the one who said it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Brian. It's a lo- 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 lovely little bus you've thrown me over. It's, it's, it's quite quite nice. One of yeah, the well, eco-friendly you know, ones. Here's the great. thing. Here's the thing, guys. You know, someone, I'm actually really grateful because uh, a, a website gave us, you know, 13 history podcasts you should be listening to. And we got on that list. Actually, it might even been 20 history podcasts you're listening to. And the comment they gave us, from their review of our podcast was great was the class clowns also happen to know what they're talking about. (laughs) And, uh, and it's, it's true. And, you know, we, we really try to make history entertaining and we do, we do know, do research for these episodes, but we are not academics guys. Like we are, we are not scholars. We've never pretended that this podcast was an academic podcast. It's a podcast for people to get interested in it. So, you know, mistakes happen. Uh, every now and again, they tend to happen a little more when I'm leading the conversation, um, <laughs> because I'm a little more up on the humor and a little less on the <laughs> on the on the the research side of it. But it is what it is. So you don't have to say things that make it sound like oh we're unbecoming of a history podcast because we make mistakes. You know, everybody makes mistakes, and I think I'll just leave it at that. Um, okay, so let's get to our other hate mail, which is all of the future hate mail we're going to receive for our cold open. From our rather large following of Australian listeners. <laughs> Indeed. Um, you know, I don't think we did too bad, but we probably didn't do is we probably ended up coming up with like a mishmash of various Australian dialects. And as, not- as well as several other dialects that are completely unrelated to the Australian continent. Yeah, I think like Scotland. And, yeah, and, 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 and Scotland came up in yours. <laughs> I think I got a little, I, I, when I said ma shout, I think it came out a little more cockney. Um and a particular Cockney, for that matter. Yeah, like East Ender Cockney, basically. <laughs> um, so um, there you have it, guys. You know, it's funny too because the character I'm playing in the show I'm in is well educated in England, and because he lives and works in England, he dropped the Australian accent um, 
tests for received pronunciation. And so when we were going over how to play the part, I asked the director if I should work in even just the slightest hint of Australian into the dialect just to see if we wanted to communicate that better. But she said, nah, don't worry about it because there's lines actually even say in the show, you would never know he was from Australia unless he told you. Got it. So, so he, he's yeah. well acclimated to England and he essentially drops the Australian accent. Which is, which I mean, historically would have made complete sense because anybody from any social standing in England, um, if you were trying to work your way up through society, you would have dropped whatever your regional accent was and spoken the Queen's or the King's English. Right. So, um, one more shout out because we're talking about Australia is we need to give a shout out to Thought Catalog and Stephanie B because we blatantly ripped off her her <laughs> blog article 13 phrases that uh 13 Aussie phrases that Americans should be start using as uh content for this for that cold open so indeed we did and it's totally unapologetic because it was a great list and we used it quite well to our comedic advantage so with that said i think perhaps it is time for us to uh jump into the topic. And if you can't already guess, listeners, we are doing one that has been a a fan-requested topic for, well, honestly, quite a few years now. Uh, and that is a history of the absolutely fascinating continent, island, whatever you want to call it, country, obviously. Uh, it is, of course, Australia. Yeah, totally. And I'm glad that we're finally getting to it. It's kind of unusual because, you no, know, usually in November we do something that is somehow, even even in the most remote way, tied to the theme of Thanksgiving. Um, I think we might have actually uh, expensed all those resources. I don't know if there's really much more we can do. Au contraire, Brian. Au contraire. I I think you you missed my my secret plug. I was the one to suggest doing this episode for November. Uh, and it, the truth is, the history of Australia really is the history of great human migrations. That's what it that's what it really breaks down to. And it was a great human migration that did lead Europeans not just to Australia, but also to the New World. So there is a a very, very indirect route to Thanksgiving, but it is it is there. It is there ever so subtly. Okay, fair enough. Now, the question I would ask is, is Australia even really considered the New World, though? I mean, is the, or is the New World not just North and South America? Is it any of any of the other countries outside of, any of the land masses outside of Africa, Asia, that uh, and Europe that were essentially discovered? I think generally the United States, or North America, I should say, was considered the New World. Uh, and that is a, a very late, or later phrasing as well. But the but point I'm making is that it's, all part of the same great human migration that we see coming out of the 1600s, really, is what it yeah, is. Yeah, okay, fair, fair. When, when, when man, um, man took so, to the seas in the 60s, well, not well before that as well, in the 1500s as well. But, you know, man took to the seas, particularly from Europe, is where, you know, from the Dutch and from the British uh, and the Spanish, and they traveled out and, and continued to spread themselves in other places and for better or worse, the effects that it has had on society since then. But uh, Sure. And I think the other thing to talk about is that when we're talking about any country outside of, I don't want to say the main three continents, but when we're talking about Africa and Asia and Europe, 
um, you know, we, we go back to the Fertile Crescent, right? We go back to, you know, that little part of North Africa where we can now pretty, pretty certainly say was the founding of all civilization that everybody can trace themselves back to the San Bushmen of that part of, part of Africa, which is, and that really, yeah, it's a, it's a bit at, outside the Fertile Crescent, but we ended up there. You know, we, we, yeah. we started in Africa and we started these great migrations outward and, you know, there's two popular theories. One, that there was a, a single migration out, which is, in my opinion, not as likely. And it went predominantly through the Middle East into Asia and then disseminated from Asia with a subgroup going into Europe and another one going south into Southeast Asia and Australia. Um, and then, of course, over into North America via land bridges and, and you know, via... Um, Right, accessible right. water straits. Yeah, and so it's it's believed that the the peoples that would eventually come to migrate the Americas passed through the Bering Strait, right? The the landmass that was able to walk from there, and the people, then the indigenous peoples who came to Australia and there by proxy New Zealand and the other you know outlying Pacific Islands um, would have gone through the Torrey Strait or through other means as well. But predominantly, we're talking about people who walked through the Torrey Strait and became the Aboriginal peoples of Australia. Correct. Or most likely a combination of both, you know, walking and also going on, on small boat and raft. Sure. Now, now that idea of a single population movement and then branching out uh, and dropping off as they go is one idea. Another idea that is being presented, which I think also has a lot of, um, a lot of weight behind it is that there were multiple migrations out of Africa and that there were two predominant ones, one that we're familiar with that we see in, in the you know, historical record uh, and as a result of our influence on our environment in the fossil record. And that, again, is the one going through the Middle East into Asia. And the other one coming out of Africa and then following along the coast of Asia Major and through India and then down to the Southeast Asia and then directly into Australia via the, the many islands that make up that uh, the part of the South Pacific. And um, I, it, it's a really interesting idea because it, it potentially puts that date of human migration and colonization of Africa, or sorry, Australia, excuse me, much earlier than it was previously thought. Hmm. So let's, let's, let's kind of discuss time frame, right? Let's give some yeah, context. Yeah, because the, the general conceived belief is that the aboriginals have been living in australia since somewhere around 50 to 60,000 years is that correct that is that, it... that is now uh the most accepted and most popular time frame for early human colonization of of australia on the okay. on the outside 60,000 years and and we can say that comfortably uh through the examination of various sites throughout the continent of Australia and through okay. carbon dating and other artifacts that have been found that allows us to date it. However, that is also being contested. Uh, there are those who believe, and, and this is a revised date, mind you, it used to be much more accepted that around 30,000 years was the earliest that Australia was inhabited. Uh, and they, they've doubled that and an official standing. And now some of the more kind of outline kind of more, not as widely accepted ideas and theories are pushing it back another 20 or even another 60 
thousand years, potentially 120,000 years ago. Which is, that's even, that's mind blowing because when I was in college taking anthropology, the accepted number at that time, which was only, you know, eight years ago that this was happening, maybe, maybe nine at the most, was that all human beings, as we know them, more specifically Homo sapiens, I'm not even sure about Neanderthals in this case, but uh, had been on the earth for about 100,000 years. So we're talking even, we have evidence now that supports that it's been even longer than that. That's correct. In fact, just in the past couple of years, there's been new research that suggests that Homo sapiens may have showed up uh, and moved out a lot sooner than people were thinking, uh, as much as, or as early perhaps as 170,000, maybe even 200,000 years ago. So almost doubling the previous estimate for our, our migration out of Africa. And these ideas that um, it, it goes back even further than 60,000 years have been around for a while. They've been floating around with much more circumstantial evidence because with radiocarbon dating, you can really only reliably go back about 30,000 years. So once you start going any further back than that, the, uh, the uh, a possibility for an error in that reading is so high, the results become highly suspect. But there's mm. other newer dating techniques that are being used and other more circumstantial evidence based on artifacts that are found uh, that are pinpointing earlier times, including also potentially the... And what the, this extreme date of 120,000 years is, is sourcing is from the, uh, the evidence that extreme fires were being burned, particularly in the southeast end uh, of Australia. And how, well, how does fire have anything to do with human habitation? Well, it's a very well-practiced uh, tool and technique to do a controlled burn, to do these controlled fires. And, and this is something that is not unique just to Aboriginal culture in Australia, but to cultures around the world, including the Native I mean, Americans. Pretty much every ever since man has come up with agriculture, you essentially have to do controlled burns so you can replenish the soil and re get the nutrients back into it so you haven't so you can still grow. Well, not exactly. Agriculture does not depend on controlled burns nearly as much as hunter-gatherer society did. In fact, agriculture very rarely uses that as a tool. It's more the fact that when you're a hunter-gatherer society, which the indigenous people of Australia have pretty much always been, um, there's been a few experimentations with things like with uh, animal husbandry in regards to fish, but for the most part, they're hunter-gatherer even to this day. But my point is that these hunter-gatherer societies throughout history have often burned the forest for, for several reasons. One, it cuts down on vegetation that is choking out and making it less likely for more nutrient-rich vegetation to grow. Mm. Uh, two, it helps to drive populations of animals away from the forest and making them easier to hunt by changing their migration patterns. Three, clears out all that underbrush, gets rid of all those tall weeds that make it more difficult to see what's actually in the forest, therefore making it easier to hunt. And then to your point, you know, we also have often this rejuvenating aspect of fire, the way that it tends to clear out and destroy old, diseased, and already dead trees while releasing seed pods of younger trees so that, or other healthier trees so that they can create a whole new generation and replenish uh, the forest. 
Okay. So all right. That, that's very typical among hunter-gatherer society all around the planet. Yeah. What, well, what, there is one thing about this when we were doing research for the episode that does kind of irk me a little bit, and that mm-hmm. is this idea that in academia, the common conception for civilization is, and therefore what creates history versus prehistory, is the advent of, uh, of, of any kind of written tool or any kind of advanced organization like agriculture. And I kind of think that the Aboriginal societies completely defy that because, you know, technically speaking, there was nothing really written down until Europe came in contact in the late 18th century with the colonizing of of Australia. And obviously to say that there is no history and no civilization before that is kind of offensive and kind of uh, insulting. Sure. I I, I think the whole word civilization kind of gets blown out of context these days. I I think that um, to imply that a group of people can only be civilized if they are agriculturally based and they've constructed what we consider to be, you know, ancient wonders or you know, things like the pyramids or large cities and have large standing armies and can kill each other in organized fashions to, to suggest that that is what makes a group of people civilized, a civilization, I think is a little silly. And I think the more technical side of it is it really has to do more with population, that large populations that come together that have a unified uh, belief system and have elements of their culture that are shared pretty universally among the entire population are, are more in the in the scientific definition of what a, of a civilization. So and, and I support that one much better because if you look at the aboriginals just in a very generic way, you see all the things that would, by the way, also make the indigenous peoples of North America and South America um, more so in North America because in South America there is these things you're talking about like, you know, big you know, great cities like Machu Picchu and, you know, Chichen Itza and all these wonderful, you know, archaeological sites that you can go and see and these masters, you know, works of architecture. Um, but you don't see that as much when you get to North America or in Australia. And I think that's why there's so many parallels drawn between those two. Uh, I, want, I don't want to say societies because there's multiple tribes in Aboriginal Australia, just as there's oh, m- many, many yeah. hundreds of tribes, exactly, uh, as there is in North America. But... Um, you know, when you look at the fact that they had advanced tools, they had watercraft, they had art. To me, art is, and of course, being the actor, that's the, that, that would naturally be my first reaction. But art, I think, is a huge indicator of civilization because you're putting something and you're keeping it for posterity. Well, hold on. I think we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves for a moment. Okay. Let's, let's, let's dial things back for just a second. Uh, just to, again, help put this into context for our listeners. So if you're not really familiar with uh, the Aboriginal people. They are, to this day, considered the longest, most, uh, I would say, unchanged way of of life in the world. Um, That their appearance in Australia uh, and what they brought to the scene at that time compared to where uh, the uh, Australian Aboriginals are today is remarkably unchanged. Their tribal society that is here today, of course, had to have changed. It had to have changed as a result of European influence. They but modernized, yes. It, well, in some cases. In, in some, some cases, cases, they haven't modernized. That's right. Uh, but you'll find that uh, their connection to their culture and traditions 
take them back in time, back in history, so that the people that we are interacting with and, and learning about today are so close to what it was to be human 30, 40, 50, 60,000 years ago, or perhaps even earlier than that. And that is incredible. These people truly are, uh, you know, our heritage. They are, they are the shared common heritage that every single human being has in common. Our society around the world has changed so much, uh, largely due to our interaction with other people. So when you do have these outline societies that are isolated and don't have that kind of influence, you see kind of how things would have been if every single continent had its own you know, isolated groups of people that never really merged and mingled like most of the rest of the world has really done. So from an anthropological viewpoint, the aboriginals of Australia are incredible. They are our teachers. They are showing us the the very nature of humanity in that regard. <laughs> for for better or for worse, because every society has two sides to it, right? Every society has things that work and don't work for it as well. And, you know, unfortunately due to a lot of in you know interference uh from the outside, you've got a kind of dire situation happening in Australia today. Now we'll 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 address that. We're gonna talk about that. We're not going to make it the sole focus of our next episode because um, we want to talk about all the great things that have come out of post-European colonization in Australia, which are numerous. There's so many great things as a result of that. But we also can't ignore the, you know, the elephant in the room, right, which is what has happened to all these, these people as a result of interference from the outside. Not, sure. Not, not unlike the Native Americans of our, of our own continent. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyhow... Here we've got this great group of adventurers, these people who've, who've journeyed out from Africa and have not settled. They continued going. They kept on moving. And then eventually they get greeted by a totally different Australia than we have today. The Australia of 80,000, 60,000 years or perhaps even earlier was very different. It was a much more lush, much more jungle-like environment which you traditionally see these days still in the Northern Territories of Australia, uh, where it is much more tropical. But that was covering the vast majority of the Australian continent at that time. And the sea level was significantly lower at that point, 50 meters lower in some situations uh, or some instances where you could, you could clearly pass on foot. But almost certainly they also would have utilized uh, small raft or boat to travel via a technique called island hopping. And this is something that uh, the American military used in the Second World War when they actually were fighting <laughs> against the Japanese. They would go one island at a time, uh, taking one island and then moving on after they had settled in. Right. And it was the same idea here, only on a on a bit of a different scale, of course. So right. And to draw another parallel here, this is also believed how the Polynesians uh, migrated into Hawaii and the other parts of the Polynesian Islands, correct? That's correct. Now, that would have been much later, but certainly same, similar technique. Yeah. Okay, cool. So once they arrived, they really took to the land. And we can see this in the fossil record. Uh, in particular, the the impact that it had on the environment and the impact that it had on the fauna of Australia, which 
you know, if you've ever been to Australia, which I haven't, but I've, you know, I've obviously I've read about it. But if you live in Australia or you've been to Australia, they got these giant freaking spiders there, man. I mean, they're freaking huge. huge. They're absolutely yeah, they're huge. Know, they're the size of your hand or bigger, and and they're just they're bigger than they're they're usually the size of like small reptiles. It's kind of unsettling. They're and, and they're, they're all over the place, man. They're all over yeah. the place. They could be hiding in your bathroom. They could be hiding in your shoes. Uh, I I don't know this for sure. I'm mostly just pulling into my own phobia right now. But I I'm like that alone terrifies me. <laughs> <laughs> to no, no end. I've seen video of a, of it. Uh, there are spiders that are like the size of, I mean, just the body, not even looking at the legs. They're talking about the body that's the size of like a rat. Right. So, and I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but if you've ever seen uh, camel spiders uh, from from the Middle East, those things are utterly terrifying. Yes. They're what? First off, they are white, and they look more Ugh. crustacean-like than they do spider-like. Ugh. It literally looks like something from a sci-fi movie. It's crazy. Or, or, or like it crawled out of the ocean and evolved before your eyes into a killing machine. Yeah. Yeah. Something you'd hear from, from like an H.P. Lovecraft uh, right. novel. So, yeah, not, not a big fan of spiders, as you can tell. But anyhow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, let's, but, I mean, you know, there, we, can, we can eventually eventually talk about, you know, koala and we can talk about kangaroo <laughs> at some point. Well, we, we will. But here's the thing. In Australia at that time, when they first arrived, those type of spiders would have been nothing. Those would have, those would have been the the easiest thing that you would have had to deal with. Things like carnivorous kangaroos and massive, gigantic snakes, as well as marsupials the size of hippopotamus. We're talking about the megafauna that inhabited uh, a, a large amount of the world. Uh, until these mass extinctions happened, you know the giant ground. So we're talking sloth. about basically ice age or late ice age type of. Well, no, no, uh, the, the ice age is when these animals generally started dying out. They, they were on the scene way earlier than that. They've been around for a long time. So you know when when these this is the Pleistocene era, right? So we're, we're right. There, there were other ice ages during that time, certainly, but at this time, um, there were no mass extinction events like you would have about thirteen thousand years ago, where there were several mass extinctions around the world. And a lot of these, these megafauna died. Now, there's a lot of debate around this because there are, there's one group of people who will say that the megafauna in Australia started dying out about 50,000 years ago. And they blame it on the direct impact of the Aboriginal people coming into Australia. So essentially hunting them to extinction. Uh, and then there's another group of people who say, no, 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 that's not the case at all. We have a lot of, from the oral tradition, which we're going to definitely have to talk about in this episode, we have a lot from the oral tradition that shows this existence alongside the megafauna, and for a very long time. And they cite other examples within the fossil record suggesting that the megafauna stuck around until about 20,000 years ago, and that it was climate change uh, due to an ice age that likely killed them off. And the truth is both parties are reasonably making a good case for their own causes. So where is the truth? And I think it lies probably somewhere in between. Um, Usually it does, yeah. Yeah, it, it almost certainly was a direct impact of, of human beings because that's what humans do. We move into somewhere and we completely change the environment around us. It's what makes us human in part. And so climate change, which we know is a very real thing, uh, I'm sorry if there's people out there who who deny it. I'm not talking about modern climate change as a result of 
our effect on the world, although I think it's a real thing. There are others who don't. But climate change has happened in our Earth's history billion, you know, millions of times, billions of times. There's all sorts of examples of climate change happening. So uh, it's almost certainly a combination of them both. I, I find it unlikely that the earliest populations of aboriginals could have completely wiped out all of the megafauna in as short a time as they are suggested to have been able to do. It doesn't seem very likely. Um, and, and they certainly do tell us stories and their amazing oral tradition that suggests that they were definitely living alongside them. And of course, there's cave paintings that depict the megafauna that were there. There are bones found alongside human remains that suggest again and show that they were together. The question is for how long? And I don't have that answer. Yeah. But yeah, and big freaking spiders. <laughs> big freaking spiders. And, you know, it's crazy to think that, you know, we deal with, you know, when you said carnivorous kangaroos, that, yeah. that evoked a certain image, right? It's a real thing, though. It's scary I mean, as hell. I mean, well, kangaroos are kind of scary as is because just, you know, we're talking, I imagine just the, I don't know if they were any bigger, but it sounds like they would have been. Like a kangaroo today can be like six feet tall on its hind legs. Yeah, or bigger. And they yeah. and they can be aggressive. They can be extremely aggressive <laughs> with their you no know, claw-like nails that are like hooks. It's you understand now why the Aboriginal peoples hunted them because they were kind of dangerous to to interact <laughs> with. Well, and know? tasty, da dangerous and tasty. And tasty you know, come on, that that's that's the definition of game. <laughs> <laughs> So they show up on the scene and a lot goes on, right? Well, you know, what's incredible is that about 30,000 years ago, so let's say they've been on the scene for about, let's just, we'll, be, we'll go with the conservative estimate. And we'll say that they've been on Australia for 30,000 years. At this point now, and there are indications of it being earlier, but now we're seeing it more widespread throughout the entire continent. Now we have incredible cave art that's being produced. And, and we have cave art in other parts of the world, but not this early. This is the earliest example of cave art that is being created by humanity. And not only that, but it's an art style that has been preserved relatively unchanged for 30,000 years. Well, here's what I find so fascinating about that too, because when you look at the famous was it's the bull that they found in the caves in France, right? That was yeah. mm -hmm. for many years conceived of as the first piece of art, right? And we think of it as, you know, the, the narrative that's been put around that was all of a sudden it was the hunt, right? It was their idea of, of describing the hunt, so they would draw it as a means of describing what they had, they had captured. Right. They were reflecting their environment around them. Right. A and hunter gatherer society. Yeah, it's a big And thing. there's a certain style and simplicity to that bull. But what I find very interesting about that bull is it's, from my memory, it's very monochromatic. Whereas if you look at some of the ancient art that you get to see from the aboriginals, it's, it's more complex, interestingly enough. Um, if I, and maybe I was looking at art that was later, that was made later, but it's multicolored. And I find that fascinating that they were able to discover pigment and be able to use that to their advantage and, you know, that early on and be able to recreate, you know, their, their pieces with those. Sure. I mean, uh, what you, what you are referencing is a, uh, is a later piece of that history. Okay. Um, what I think that you, where we, where you're going with this as well is that you also have the, the caves in Southern France that are known for their 17,000 year old 
cave paintings, which do depict the hunt and do show, you know, also precisely what you're talking about, right? Because it reflected their society. You find that the things like bowls and what have you generally come later, um, but but carried over those same themes and ideas, and they were pulled onto pottery and other other ceramic wares, uh, and and in preceding that, also things like bone tools and other ceremonial objects. What's what's incredible about what's happening here in Australia is we're talking about almost ten thousand years or earlier, because there are definitely examples in Australia, even though they can't be definitively dated like the ones. Uh, that are 30,000 years old can, we're, we're still talking about, uh, of just the confirmed ones, 10,000 years preceding that. Cave wow, really? Cave, cave paintings. Yeah, we're talking about, so So the, the confirmed ones, the ones that are generally accepted by all the scientific community, uh, is that about 28,000 years ago, the first signs of cave art are happening in Australia. But honestly, there are suggestions in other parts of the country that go back even earlier than that, another 20,000 years. So... This reflects a very interesting society, uh, one that had already started creating art and has maintained it. And that's the crazy thing. It has remained almost completely unchanged for 30,000 years. To me, that, that just, it just blows my mind. And I'm not alone in that, obviously, or else there wouldn't be, you know, anthropologists in Australia all the time. So... Yeah, and there's a couple of things I, I think about when I'm about that because, you know, Western art, and I say Western art as I say European art, changed because of, you know, innovations that happened, right? But you don't have innovation unless you have luxury. And, you know, the European societies, that was one thing they were very good at being able to doing. They were able to, to create a luxurious existence for themselves. But that does not necessarily mean that the, that those people, those peoples, were any more intelligent or any more sophisticated necessarily than the Aboriginal peoples. It just means that they had a different set of circumstances they were able to take advantage of. Yeah, I mean, iron, iron, and the ability to craft metal tools uh, really leads to a bunch of other open doors for technology, but. The Aborigines in Australia didn't, didn't have that same kind of, to your point, a luxury, right? They didn't have those luxury items. But it didn't stop them from producing very early and continuing to produce amazing art, which then was reflected in, in other aspects of their culture. So so let's talk a little bit about this, because now, now from our, in our story of, of this, of this amazing journey, the Aborigines have been in Australia for quite some time. And as a result... They have spread out over the entire continent. And while they've done this, Australia has also gone through a lot of changes. The environment has dramatically shifted, going back and forth between lush and tropical and dry and arid through periods of thousands of year-long droughts. We're talking about some of the most extreme conditions on Earth, and yet they prevail and they survive. And they continue to populate and spread out uh, and adapt. And I think that's that's one of the, the key pieces to this whole story is the adaptability of the of the Aborigine people. They're they're they are so able to just on the flip of a dime go from one scenario and one situation to the next and, and thrive in it. And um, you find that about ten thousand years ago in Australia things started to look a lot more like they are now. 
And, you know, obviously, if you're from Australia, you know just how diverse your continent is. If you're not, they have everything. They've got a little bit of everything. Predominantly desert, which is most of Western Australia and Southern Australia. And then that bleeds out from the center of the continent into the other states, the modern states. And then all around that, you've got grassland, like savanna. And then on the outside, on the outer rim of Australia, up in the north, you have a tropical and equatorial type environment, right? As you get closer to those tropical islands of, you know, New Guinea and Indonesia and other islands in Southeast Asia. And then in the south, as you get closer to Antarctica, you have a much more temperate environment, not unlike what you find here in in this part of California, in the Bay Area. It's very similar. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's interesting you bring that up because California yeah. is always talked about as a region that has a little bit of every climate uh, in it. And yes. we're a lot and like Australia. Just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just we're much smaller, much, much, much smaller. smaller. Yeah, Australia is the is the um, I believe it's the sixth largest landmass uh, in in the world, which is why it's a continent, duh. Uh, and also, of course, it's the I believe the thirteenth. Uh, largest country in terms of of square mileage or kilometers or however you want. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, so what you've got now is then in the modern state of Victoria and Tasmania, the island of Tasmania, and then of course um, in Sydney and and uh, and the surrounding areas there and the capital and all that, you have a, a really nice place to live. That's why everybody lives there now. The vast majority of Australia's population, all 24 million who live there currently, um, which, by the way, is 10 million less than California, if you can believe that. Isn't that kind of crazy? Yeah, it is kind of crazy. Yeah. A lot of space to spread out. Oh, yeah. Um, just to, I want to make sure that you know, we catch it now, because what Eric was not saying is he was not saying Sydney was the capital No, no, of no, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. No, 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 no. He said the capital area, which is Canberra, yes, by the way. Yes, yes. No, but... Just that Sydney, which is the most populous city yes. in Australia, uh, he was just making. I just want to make sure that, that was very clear yes. that I, it was. Go was back and listen. Speaking. I said, and the capital, and the capital. See, there's the. Yes. And okay. Cool. Yes, well, we you. want to make sure that we didn't create the commit the most <laughs> egregious offense that most Americans create, which is assuming that Sydney is the capital of Australia. It's, <laughs> it's not. not. It is not by any means, uh, although it practically could be. But anyhow, the point <laughs> I'm making is that. Just like modern Australia today, the largest groupings of aboriginals were living along the coast in southwest, or sorry, excuse me, southeast Australia. And then they were everywhere else, though, too. They were spread out across this entire diverse continent. And eventually, by the time Europeans had arrived on the scene, there are estimates that there are somewhere between 600 and 900 individual tribes yeah, or, or and clans. speaking somewhere around 250 different languages, and uh, and well some over languages. 600 dialects too. We're talking; it's just crazy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Some of some of the major areas have 100 different dialects for that one language, which is crazy. Like that's just like it's that's and that's another example of complexity too. It's just like you you've got all these different. I mean, you can't. I can't even fathom the level of complexity that the, these linguistics would. Well, entail. and that's why we refer to them as the Aboriginal peoples, right? Because we're talking about so many different groups, and they themselves would be the first one to tell you that they're all different and unique in their own special way. And so as a result, you can't make too many generalizations, right? We, we can see 
in the fossil record, when we're talking about their ancient history, we can see a lot of common trends, right? And then we can also observe, like I was saying, in their art style at that time. But as we get closer and closer to the modern day, uh, it's becoming more and more difficult for us to generalize, nor should you ever really, but sometimes it makes it easier to explain when you're talking about a big topic. And that's where it gets a little bit more confusing. So let's let's talk about current Aboriginal society, understanding that change is not something that happens very quickly. And, yeah. and knowing that the traditions and the beliefs that we're talking about that are held by the people today are directly coming from their from their ancestors. And much of what I'm referring to was present 30,000 years ago, and some of it has come around the scene over the past 10,000 years. So it's a, bit, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. But I think the, the one thing that does kind of unify, uh, or a couple of things that unify all these different tribes together, is that they were a semi-nomadic people. That once they, and still are to a certain degree, but not so much because reservations have really prevented that from happening, but certainly up until the arrival of the Europeans, you had these large areas, these large territories, but you moved around within those territories. Um, you you did have a few examples uh, like, um, you know, and, and, and some of the island groups that are off the coast of Australia were they certainly did have like settled villages just because there, there wasn't enough room to be nomadic on these islands. Sure. But, yeah. but, but on the, on the continent major, you needed to keep moving around because of the hostile environment that Australia provided for you in, in some cases. So they remained hunter gatherer. Everyone around the continent was a hunter gatherer and it became an important aspect of their culture from the moment they were on the scene. And, the hunt itself, of course, is performed by men, uh, as is common among other tribal societies around the world. And the gathering is performed by women and the children that were in their in their custody. And, and I mean, that makes sense because to hunt, you do need upper body strength to do that. Mm -hmm. And especially since you're not talking about, you know, non-ballistic weapons. And I mean that in the strictest sense of the word. Is, no, we're not talking about can't no guns. And we're not talking about... Right. No you know, bullets. <laughs> no bullets, exactly. They did have in the they, they have ballistics, have ballistic though. Yeah, exactly. I don't I don't mean that in the sense that they didn't even have, you know obviously they had throwing sticks and they had you no know, the famous boomerang as a as a tool. Um eh, we'll but, talk about that. <laughs> well, we'll talk about that too, yeah, because yeah, there's yeah. there's a lot of misinformation about it too. Um but it just makes sense because you need strong upper body strength to use those weapons. Right. To kill an animal, right, and and so you know that 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 is just the way it is. On average, the male of the species has more upper body strength than the female species. We've talked about this at, to, to all lengths in earlier episodes. So nothing sexist is being implied here. This is this is just biology. Yeah. Anyway, the women had a much more difficult job, but I won't get into that either. So yeah, they had to walk further, I think, to find food to forage for food. So. Well, well, not only that, but they faced a lot more dangers because when you are hunter gatherer and you're digging around with a digging stick in the ground, there's always the chance that you're going to be killed by one of many poisonous snakes that inhabit the Australian continent. Sure. So yeah, I think absolutely. it was a far more dangerous job than, than hunting normally was, especially when you're hunting with a ranged weapon. When you're down in the ground, you're digging for, you know, yams that are naturally growing yams that are in the ground there. You better watch out. Yeah. Uh, and they worked together as all hunter gatherer societies do. They needed both of these elements. They needed the 
the more sustainable food source that kept everybody going all the time, which of course was gathered, and they needed the higher sources of protein uh, to keep themselves strong and healthy and fend off against disease and promote, you know, higher brain development. And that is where the meat came from. That's where hunting developed. And then the hunt, of course, was a reflection of their cultural beliefs, uh, as was gathering. Pretty much everything that's done in Aboriginal society is connected in some way to the land. And it's their land that is the center of their spirituality. Mm-hmm. And, it, and that's so important because if you think about Australia itself and the challenges that it presents, it's no big surprise that their society developed in this way with such an intense respect for the land. Because for everything that could kill them, there was something that could give them life. And it all came from the environment around them. There was very little that they were manufacturing, that they were making. There was nothing that was truly artificial. Everything was a natural way of life. Right, right. And, uh, you know, you're talking about this sense of, of animism, too, because in their spirituality, they they, they believed that, uh, or they, and a very small percentage of Aboriginals still believe this, but the sense that everything around them maintains some sort of spiritual essence to it, right? Well, I, 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 would, I would heavily contest a small group. I, I'd say the vast majority of, of folks who are, who are Aboriginal or descended from an Aboriginal tribe hold very closely to their beliefs, these beliefs that have been around for tens of thousands of years. That's what makes them so unique. That even yeah. in the face of, of European colonization, their religious beliefs have held steady. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's very impressive because it's a, <laughs> it's a very complex mythology and it was actually their number one export for trade. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the oral tradition because it also truly defines this group of people. The stories that are told are told from a time called the dreaming or the dream time. Yeah. I love it. The dream time. Yeah. The yeah. dream time. And this is, this is the time before this is when the gods, which took the form of enormous human beings, giants, if you will, they took the form of these massive animals where they quite literally, in many of these creation mythologies, carved out the landscape. And in one of them, uh, Australia, the continent itself, is a giant turtle. In another one, it was the rainbow serpent, which we'll talk a little bit about, that comes up from the depths of this underworld, this concept of an underworld, and then carves out all of the, the valleys and mountains and desert regions and all of this, all the topography of the entire continent, just by slithering around, kind of intentionally, but also accidentally creating everything. And these gods are very fallible. They are not the supreme beings that represent in, you know, ancient Egyptian and, and, and Mesopotamian and Greek mythology, where they were thought to be the, the pinnacle, what we wanted to achieve and strive towards. But rather, these gods got it wrong sometimes. And in getting it wrong and completely wrong, taught a message or taught a story. And eventually when the dreaming time ends, the gods then become the topography. They become their environment. They become mountains. They become large rock formations. They become trees. They become the animals. They become termite mounds. You name it. They are everything that's around them. And so the stories they tell which are traditionally told through song 
which are performed during ceremonies, including dance and music that accompany all of this, they don't just tell a story. They actually tell their entire territory. They def- they, every Aboriginal in the tribe who attends one of these you know, ceremonies is hearing and therefore learning how to get around their own territory. They know where everything is because their gods are landmarks. And it's one reason why the Aboriginal people, and this is, again, something that unifies all the different tribes, are such superb trackers and hunters, because from the moment they can hear, they're introduced to a map, essentially a map of their territory they keep in their brain. It's amazing. Absolutely. And it's, and it is actually, it's brilliant, really, when you think about it, it's a... How, how often do you hear about the merging of geography and mythology at the same time? Yeah, yeah, you, know? you don't. You really don't. And yeah, and and then, um, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to issue a, a, a small correction to the statement I made earlier about um, a smaller number of uh, Aboriginal peoples holding on or not holding on to their beliefs. Um, I'm I'm going off of percentages off of more recent census census data that's happened in Australia. Um, but the thing I need to qualify that statement with is that there is actually, it's very difficult to get accurate census data yeah. from Aboriginal peoples because a lot of them refuse to uh, participate in the, that type of tracking. Uh, and I'm, and that, and I'm also, a, a, well, kind of a darker part of the story, which we'll get to in a little bit, is that, you know, the, the sheer numbers of Aboriginal peoples have been, you know, decimated because of yeah, the European colonization of it. So some estimates only put them at between three and five percent of the current population. Exactly, and that's the population. That's the percentage of the overall population of Australia that right. maintains that that spirituality. And that's what I should have should have been more clear about. And when I was thinking about it, and I wasn't. So I was I was in error when I said that. So well, no worries. And you know, it's you, you, well, you think about it, and you think about how similar cultures have been affected by outside influence, by outside invasion. And what is typically happens is that they often would assimilate into the invading culture and would many times adopt the religion and cultural beliefs of that invading force. And it was the modus operandi of the Romans. Exactly. Yeah. And as well as in China and in the Middle East and pretty much everywhere. But you'll find that in Australia, that's where you have these outliners that even after, you know, 300 years, 300 plus years, they are still trying to stick as close as they can. Certainly, I'm not saying that there are that that is not a big problem. It's a huge problem is losing your cultural identity and many of the young folks then moving off to the city and getting a more traditional lifestyle in Australia, which is not a bad thing either. I'm I'm not approving or condemning either way of life. What I'm saying is that uh, in doing so, though, they do lose some of that cultural identity. So there's yeah. there's a huge Which, conservative effort to, to try to at least tell the stories and have the stories be remembered. Right. And I think it's also why it's fairly common now that when you do see uh, stories of intermarriage and, uh, you know, children being bo- new generations being born that are, are a mix of Aboriginal and European descent, that they tend to choose to maintain that they say that they're their Aboriginal descent over their European yeah, ancestry because they want to maintain that cultural identity and they want to push it forward. But you know, it's also really important to remember that in an Aboriginal culture, your religion, which is your everything, which is everything that you just do, 
because um, we now exist in the dreaming, right? Not in the dream time, in the time before, but when we are ourselves still connecting with that spirit world, when we go to sleep and we have these dreams, that's that's when that connection happens. So Aboriginal people are still considering themselves in this dreaming. And as a result, in order for that to be preserved, for the dreaming to continue, these these ceremonies have to keep going on. So someone has to know, the later generations the, have to be taught or else it really is more than just a way of life. To them, it's it's a way of, it's an end of their universe. Yeah, and in the more tribal existences of it, it was that was very heavily leaned upon by the healers of those tribes, right? They were not only the medicine men and women, but they were also the ones who, who I don't want to use the word propagate, but the ones who would, who would you know, uh, har- what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, nurture and spread this whole, you know, idea of dream time and dreaming forward. Well, you know, it's really interesting because the Aboriginal tribes, and again, this is another commonality that many of them have together, is that the hierarchy never really existed in the sense of the chieftain or, or even so much in the healer. There, there really is not a clear definition of a, of a healer. What there is, however, is the elder. And the elder is all of those things combined, is a healer, is a statesman in a sense, is, is the diplomat. And it's simply because if you're older, you're wiser and you have more experience. So you really are allowed to tell everyone else what to do. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it has nothing to do with your standing or how, what family you're born into because the tribe, at least the individual tribe, is largely considered to be equal. Uh, it is age that usually denotes authority. And then you have these very strict um, peer systems that are set up where everything from from marriage to kind of who can talk to who and under what circumstances can men or women do different things, all of this is more or less understood among Aboriginal law. And that's where you're going to start seeing more variation between each of the individual tribes. Their mythologies are not all the same, although you have some unifying ideas like the the rainbow serpent, which we think may also be a reflection of the time they've spent with these gigantic super snakes. You ever seen that movie Anaconda with uh, yeah. with Jennifer, uh, whatever, Jennifer Lopez? Jennifer Lopez. Yeah. yeah, that's a really bad movie. But there were snakes <laughs> that were pretty much that big in reality. Okay. Right. And they were in freaking Australia because that's where they would be because that's where that's where the death creatures live is Australia. <laughs> so that's where the death creatures live. That's right. So no wonder it inspired not just a mythology, but one that was so widespread that it shows up on pretty much every part of the continent. So you have some of those unifying mythologies, but you also had some very distinct and very individual stories and what happens is that all these tribes that are right near each other, and you know, some tribes are only 30 people big. Others were hundreds, if not thousands, right? So we're talking about really big differences. But they they tried to coexist as peacefully as possible through the trade of song. Hmm. And it was these these the, the oral tradition, right? The passing down of the song and therefore of the mythologies and the stories from one generation to the next, a very precise process. You know, you started this very early so that you would, as you got older, be indoctrinated into one more piece at a time. That way you could remember and retain everything by slowly being paced through this process of retaining the oral history of your tribe. And again, told through these mythologies. 
And then you would trade these stories with your neighbors. And it was a way of bonding. It was a way of of not unifying tribes because they, they still valued their distinctiveness, but it was a way of creating cooperation. And then you had ceremonies that had to tell these stories and therefore the ceremonies were being mixed between the tribes. And that's where, that's where you had this peaceful coexisting going on yeah. most of the time. When you say ceremony and you say storytelling, I can't help but think of uh, theater, you know. As, but, as you would, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is, uh, but this it, is a type of performing arts uh, because if, you've, if you ever watch it, and if you haven't, I highly recommend that you, you watch it. It's a fascinating process to see how it, how it elevates. You know, it starts very simple generally and slower, but everyone in the tribe has a role. And they all play out these different stories and and they all have to learn different dances that emulate different animals and different people and all these different stories they tell of their heroes and of the of the dreaming time. And the costume, the the body art, it's all just it's 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 so original. It's so what is humanity, it's what we are, it's our origins, and it's so incredible to see it preserved and and enacted and to see the the effect that it has. Now, I, I want to make sure that I'm being fair to this because let's also remember that, you know, these people could not possibly coexist in a Garden of Eden where everybody hung out and was happy with each other. That's just not human nature. Human nature is also conflict and it is greed and it is fighting. And there were definitely territorial disputes. There were definitely disputes over women, over Marriages gone wrong over cheating, over things like incest, which are super taboo, highly taboo among all of the, the aboriginal tribes. And, and not surprising when you don't have a lot of genetic mixing going on in a, in a, you know, a continent that's locked off from everybody else, right? Like that's, that's not good for genetics anyway, is, is the fact that you've got brothers and sisters doing stuff like that. But it gains this really severe taboo. And that led to violence. That led to small-scale warfare because these were not the sweeping armies of Europe, right? These were small tribes. And so they would conduct warfare in a tribal way. And it never completely exploded out of control where you had one group then dominating and conquering all the others. That just wasn't the aboriginal way. Uh, and preferably they would avoid conflict if they could, mediated through these elders who would call together screaming matches where you would have the two arguing parties and they'd literally do that. They'd fight just by yelling at each other and screaming at each other and trying to intimidate each other. Not unlike the presidential debates of this past year, <laughs> <laughs> only with less violence. Uh, and as a result, you would either resolve the conflict or it would turn into something nasty. But when it resolved it, things were good. And they would even sometimes get together, certain tribes would have mock battles where they would get their tension out by just kind of giving each other a bloody nose, right? You know, punching and, and kicking and throwing dirt, but they wouldn't be, you know, beheading each other or spearing each other through the chest. So in a way, it's almost like sports. It's Kinda. a weird combination of like theater and sports put together. Yeah, exactly. So huh. there was a mixture of of, of both the diffusing of violence and of the act of violence. This is to be expected. This is humanity. Right? Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you bring up the, the idea that, you know, sure, there were territorial disputes, but you never really saw this idea of, like, conquering. No. That we kind of got in European 
scented cultures. No, no, and, no. I mean, in, in Asian cultures too, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't, no, yeah. just, it's all around. Exactly. And maybe it's because of this deep respect for the land and like the fact that this is all of us, this is all of our land that, because we all, because they have that shared core mythology and that shared core geography. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're right. And, and it's also, it's not unique to the Aborigines of Australia. Other tribal warfare has been going on for a long time. And you saw the same thing in the Americas with, with the Native Americans of our own continent. You know, they didn't really practice widespread warfare. It was, it was skirmishes with your neighbors, more or less. Uh, occasionally, certain groups were probably wiped out. I'm sure it happened. There's not a whole lot of evidence to show that happened very often, but um, I'm sure there was precedence for it in the thousands upon thousands of years that the people were, were living there. Sure. But, but, you know, it is unique in their culture that they're able to preserve this incredible art, this incredible history, and tell it all through the oral tradition with no written word. You know, literature is a really new thing. In the, in the, in the whole scale of humanity, the written word is so new and so unique, you know, it is unusual. It's everything that happened before that, which we see right here in Australia, right? A perfect preserved history of it. Here we see the oral tradition at its finest. And it is so precise that archaeologists and anthropologists and geologists have looked at the Australian continent and looked into the science of its history and have found that the stories that are being told reflect directly with events that have happened in Australia's past, including ice ages, extinctions, coexistence with the megafauna, uh, changes in sea level, the visibility of comets passing through our solar system, getting close to Earth. All of this is told through a highly accurate oral tradition. And I'm talking about events that could have happened more than 10,000 years ago. I think it's important that we we address that you know oral tradition deserves its credit because I think a lot of people assume that oral tradition automatically means that there's margin for error and margin for reinterpretation and I think when you get to literature and when you get to more sophisticated societies where you hear contradictory versions of a story because you can write it down you can record it in a way where it's easy to refer back to right that makes sense. But when you're talking about a, a method of passing information that is based entirely on memorization, uh, because if you don't get it right, this, the history is lost. Um, that it's just not the case. And it's, um, I mean, and this is true absolutely in the Aboriginal societies of, of Australia, but it's also true of other ancient societies as well. Yeah, it, it, this is not a unique practice. What's unique about it is that it survives to this day. And, and that's where I give the aboriginals of Australia even more credit. Uh, the fact that they've, they've maintained the oral tradition to the, to the way they have. Um, let's, let's change gears real quick for a minute. And just sure. kind of, if it's okay, just because we've been talking about some pretty heavy stuff, let's just talk about a couple of other little bit more anecdotal things just to kind of lighten the mood a little bit. Uh, when you think of Australia, you think of a couple of things. You Kangaroos, boomerangs, and koalas. And, and fosters. Yeah, and fosters. And, foster, and, 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 and the Sydney Opera House. Though if, though if you go to Australia and order a fosters, they will look at you 
like you've got two heads. <laughs> well, yeah, isn't it kind of like the Budweiser of right. Australia? It's, well, that's the case. Like if you go to Ireland and you order a Guinness, they they look they they sneer at you because yeah. unless you're in Dublin, you don't drink. You drink whatever the local brew is, right. and it's true. It's like, but yet you go to another country, and all of a sudden Budweiser is like the posh American impulse right. beer, and that's. So not true. You're walking in, well, oh, you know what? I'm going to have myself a giant spider in a glass. Just, uh, yeah, make sure there's not a lot of head on it. Little fangs. Just little ones. Anyhow, uh, <laughs> I, I absolutely digress before, again, I upset our Australian listeners. Uh, let's talk about the the musical side of the ceremonies that are being performed. Because Oh, yeah, the didgeridoo. Of course, yeah, the didgeridoo. The didgeridoo, one of the most recognizable uh, exports, if you will, of Australia. Is very hard instrument to play, by the way. It is. It's tricky, but it in principle it's very simple. What what a didgeridoo is is a hollowed out log, and that's about it. It's a hollowed out <laughs> log, and but the the playing of it comes from inside. It comes from deep in the diaphragm. It comes from uh, unique movements of the tongue, as well as a a kind of paralysis of, of your face, kind of a voluntary paralysis. You have to really let your lips go completely loose and numb uh, for the, the real resonating effect to happen. And that's what it is. It's a resonation. It's a resonating chamber is what it is. And the didgeridoo, while we kind of take it for granted, is one of the most important instruments of Aboriginal mysticism that exists. It is... Uh, it is vital to the ceremonies and therefore to the storytelling, therefore to the the dreaming uh, that needs hmm. to happen to exist. And so uh, didgeridoos are made in the way they have been for a long time where you you go out there and you try to find a hollow tree. And this is not difficult to do because there are probably more termites on the continent of Australia than there are anywhere else in the world. Hmm. They are numerous and they produce these actually really impressive sometimes you know six foot tall termite mounds of of clay and earth uh but in absence of that they use trees of course and so they hollow out these trees while keeping them alive while preserving them but they still they manage to hollow them out and they chop them down with uh with axes back you know before european involvement it would have been a stone hand axe that would have been used nowadays it's a traditional uh steel or iron axe and you cut the tree down, you cut either end off so that it's smooth on either end, and then you clear out all the crap, like literally all the termite feces. Uh, you clear it all out. <laughs> that's well, that's a lot. What's in there is a bunch of termite poop. So you clear that out and you clear any of the loose wood that's on the inside and you get it hollow, hollower, and you paint it and then you sit there with it and you, you balance it. You usually do it sitting. You can do it standing, but you can also do it sitting. And you balance it with a foot to kind of keep it off the ground generally so you don't get a lot of dust into your mouth. Because the, the um, gosh, what the heck is it called? It's 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 a technique that um, those who play wind instruments used. Uh, oh, circulatory breathing. So yeah. the, the idea behind this is, of course, you you inhale through the nose and exhale through the mouth, but you do so at the same time. And it's, it's actually very difficult to figure out how to do initially because that's very counterintuitive to what your body wants to do. But yeah, it's actually, uh, Kenny G is known for being able to do that. Yeah. You can play. Yeah. 
So uh, you know, apparently it's 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 commonly practiced, but it's it's difficult to fish uh, you know initially learn. But once you get it, you kind of always get it. Like you just you learn how to do it. And those who are extremely good at doing it with a didgeridoo can hold a single tone for ten minutes, which is crazy. Which I guess is super hard to do. Um, so if you're not impressed, get impressed because I understand it's very difficult. But the the tones are produced again as I demonstrated or as I mentioned earlier. So I'm going to kind of demonstrate for you now. now. I don't actually have a didgeridoo in front of me, or else, damn it, this would have been amazing radio. So instead, it's mostly going to sound like me spitting at the mic. But I kind of want to just get the idea across to you. So you you want to loosen the lips, come from the diaphragm, and then it's a lot of okay so the vocal cords are creating the pitch it's just the didgeridoo is playing is providing the resonance exactly you're producing the sound you're clicking with the top of your tongue up against the the roof of your mouth you are rolling your tongue you are alternating the pitch through the amount of air that you're doing and, and the way you're contracting your diaphragm and what creates that uniquely didgeridoo sound and maybe sean i don't know if you can do this if or we'll get like taken off the air for it or something maybe we can have like 10 seconds of didgeridoo you'll hear it has this really kind of hollowed out sound to it, it has this resonating that's happening and you get different sounds depending on the length of the didgeridoo the type of wood the thickness of the wood um you, you get you get a very different sound so you know this art of making the didgeridoo is not to be taken for granted either it's 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 a big deal because it's a hugely spiritual device if if there's one thing that has been exported out of australia though that's been taken even more out of context than the didgeridoo the boomerang it's the freaking boomerang yeah so oh now i'll also mention the didgeridoo because of all the different dialects and languages spoken has tons of different names uh, and didgeridoo, I I think is more of a kind of like boomerang. It's it's a bastardization of the actual pronunciation or one pronunciation of the of the device itself. There are many different names. Um, the boomerang, however, is the traditional throwing stick, and throwing sticks have been around for as long as there have been hunter gatherers. Until you know, at some point in the Stone Age, somebody picked up a log and thought, I could kill something with this. <laughs> And then they thought, you know, it's really not that heavy. I wonder if I could kill that thing over there. And they did. And it was a great yeah. and it was a great decision. Uh, <laughs> and then throughout the rest of human history, we have slowly worked on perfecting the shape of that throwing stick. Through carving and through smoking of wood too, to be able to to bend it, to soaking soaking and yep. smoking it so that you can bend it. Get it hot enough you can give it a little bit of shape. Uh, or carving it to your point, right? So there's lots of different ways to to create this. Uh, carving was the most traditional way of creating the boomerang for the Austra or for the Australian Aborigines, and they are huge. Some of these are you know like two or three uh, feet long and a couple of kilos. They're like they're really heavy, mm -hmm. and you could you can easily bash somebody's skull in with it, and that was the whole point. So. The traditional yeah, they used to hunt kangaroo. Yeah, exactly. And they're huge animals, you know, and especially bringing down the red kangaroo, which is considered to be, you know, the cream of the crop. It's the hardest. It's the biggest and most dangerous of them all. So if you brought down a, a red kangaroo, that was bragging rights. And um, 
the the biggest misconception though besides the the size of these boomerangs is the returning boomerang which is totally a thing like returning boomerangs have been around for a long time and they've been used in cultures in Europe and Asia but they haven't been used in Australia not not that there's any credible evidence for uh, if they did, they might have been just kind of accidentally created that way because the Australian Aborigines really just, you, they wanted it to go in one direction and end when it was slightly embedded into the animal so or, right. or person. <laughs> like it was meant But they were to, also designed for reuse, right? You could oh yeah. you would pull it out and then you would use it well, again. Well, yeah, so. and, and usually it wouldn't go deep. I mean, it would probably, you know, cave your skull in, but it wouldn't necessarily lacerate unless it had a bit of a sharper edge on it but yeah and you're also talking about dozens of these being hurled at at creatures too so it's oh, yeah. like you're like being barraged with these throwing sticks yeah people all kind of got together and hunted in groups right so yeah uh, you know besides the boomerang the primary weapon uh was the spear which was a bit easier to throw but didn't have the the power to bring down an emu by snapping its neck and didn't have the right. power to bash in the head of a kangaroo or, or take it out from, you know, underneath by one of the legs. So the the spear, which was a throwing spear, would also be used in close combat or close hunting to finish the kill. Uh, knives and clubs and other, you know, weapons were also produced made of bone, predominantly in wood, but um, not to the level that the spear and the boomerang were produced. And most knives were, they thought to be used uh, as tools, as more functional than close combat, killing each other kind of stuff. Right, 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 right. Yeah. We have clarified, and hopefully you will disseminate that information out to people who, who if they do misspeak about those items, uh, you can set them straight. What's the final point you wanted to make? Well, I think that you hear a lot about, you know, like going on a walkabout and all that. And in my research that I've done, it is definitely something that exists, but perhaps not to the same importance that is put onto it by our perception of it these days. Uh, it is practiced by some Australian Aboriginals, and it really is just kind of going out and communing with the land. And that, and that is exactly what they do every single day. Um, it's going and doing it alone that has kind of a bit more of a spiritual aspect to it, but it just doesn't have the same kind of popularity i guess that's that's perceived of by the public okay that's fair well first off i do eric i need to tell you you know thank you first off for taking the lead on this episode but sure. also number one number two thank you for so beautifully uh, illustrating uh and really helping uh us understand much more about the ways of the aboriginal peoples and just giving great insight into just the way of life that we don't we don't ever think about because we've become so disconnected from that way of living. It's awesome. And I couldn't help but think of the numerous parallels to Native American cultures that we've you know that we normally would be discussing. And it goes further to your point, which is it it makes it realize how much more alike we all are versus how different we all are. Precisely. You know, we go back far enough into our shared history, we're all doing the same thing. We're, we're, we were all exi existing and living a lot like the aboriginals of Australia. It is our, our shared heritage, and it should be respected and understood and appreciated and, and learned from. Um, and I, I will say that I appreciate the enormity of doing this episode because there is a lot of hostility and misunderstanding 
and aggression directed to this day towards Aboriginal peoples in Australia. And it's, it's a fact of life, just like there is still a lot of discrimination and, and hostility directed towards their, you know, our, our, our Native Americans of, of this continent, of those cultural groups and those tribes. And there's a lot in the news going on around that right now, around that, that conflict that still exists today. And, you know, we're, we're going to talk about this more in the, in the next episode because we, we can't avoid it. We're not going to make it the central theme of the episode, although I, I think that something like that might be warranted in the future, but it's, it's highly political. And I think that we, we have to certainly address parts of it, but we don't have to focus on it solely for the next episode. I think if you want to learn about what these people have gone through since European colonization, we'll, we'll introduce you to it in the next episode, but there's a lot more that you can become educated on as a result. Uh, I will say I hope that trends that are happening now are continuing to move in the right direction. Um, I'll say that the the folks that are on these reservations in Australia right now are in a really tough situation, that they have a lot of problems that are being faced by their, their community right now, the things like drug addiction and domestic abuse and alcoholism that is present and this is an environment that I think has largely been created and it's very sad because uh, I would love to see that turn around and and there's so many sides to this and I, I, I really I want to caution our listeners I, I'm not trying to get into some hyper politicalized debate around this I'm sure our Australian listeners have a lot of very deep feelings about it I will say that I don't believe in the guilt of generations that have not participated in that behavior like i don't think that if your great grandfather did something that that should reflect on you negatively that it's not your responsibility for what your ancestors did but i think it is a collective responsibility that we share our understanding of what happened right as you know we have said and as many people have said before too you know the moment you history repeats itself is when you refuse to learn from it right right and there is there is definitely a certain point where you have to you know cut off and say okay yes we're not i'm not personally accountable for this but now you see it when we study every single culture um that every person is capable of mistreating another person to the extent that these peoples have been mistreated right and to think that you're not capable of that is just straight up denial right and you know whether your intentions are good or or evil it's nevertheless the truth and and the moment you deny yourself that that can actually happen is the moment you set yourself up for the same atrocities and the same mischief that's right this is happening all over again and so and the other side of it is the reality is in order for us to move past that kind of thinking we have to treat other people with respect, not because we feel that we have an obligation to, not because out of a sense of guilt, but because it's the right thing to do to help another person, right? That should be the thinking. The thinking should be that somebody needs something, and I have a means that I can help with, so I'm going to help to that means. And it should have nothing to do with the history that's come before it. It should just be out of a desire to help. And I think that, yeah. I think that if that can happen... And both sides can accept that, 
then that's when real healing is capable of happening. And I'm not just talking about what's going on in Australia. I'm talking about what's happening around the world with other displaced populations of indigenous people. This is this is common. This is happening in other places. And the, the big notable ones, obviously, are the Native Americans of this continent, the indigenous people of the, of the continent below us as well in South America. I mean, look at what's going on in the Brazilian rainforests, right? And then, obviously, what's happening in Australia because it's so on the scene. It's so, it's so public. Um, but they're not alone. There's other less public instances of this happening. And I just wish we could all just help each other because we want to, not because we're told Agreed. or feel that we need to. And you know what? Yeah. I actually think that I'm going to say we skip feedback for this episode because you, you put it on such a great note. Um, let's save the, the rest of the feedback that we got aside from our election corrections. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. For the next episode. So what I will say, though, is that, Eric, thank you again. This is obviously a really important topic, and I'd love to get the feedback from our Australian listeners. And yeah. I don't want just to say Australian because, you know, what we haven't talked about, you know, is the basic geography that Australia is one landmass in a political continent known as Oceania, right? Mm-hmm. Or Oceania. I don't know how you quite you pronounce it, but I've, I was taught Oceania. And so, you know, you're also talking about similarities and differences too, but similarities to other islands, you know, and other landmasses like New Zealand, for example. Sure, um, Papua are, New Guinea. Yeah. That are not too far away. So I would, I encourage our listeners from that part of the world who we've, you know, lost touch with a little bit because we haven't heard feedback from them in a while. You know, I remember, I think of Stephen Bella from early on who yeah. was our first Australian listener. That's right, that's right. To, 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 uh, to re-engage with us and uh, give, give us feedback and tell us how we did Add to the conversation because we want to hear your perspective on it more because it's going to be you know a hundred times more accurate than what we can say. All we can do is you know spew facts out. You know, but, but you you're can actually bring living different... it. Yeah. And if we do have any listeners that do have Aboriginal descent, oh my God, please talk to us. Yeah. Seriously, um, hit us up. And here's how you can hit us up: you can go to Neuronomy.com and click on the Talk to Us link at the top of the page, and you can send us feedback that will go to our direct email addresses. Um, you can, of course, send us a, a voicemail from the phone number that's on the, the website uh, marked at the top and at the, sorry, I should say the, the right and the bottom of the page. Uh, or hit us up on social media through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Nerdonomy. You, I guarantee if you just search the interwebs for Nerdonomy, you will find us, I promise you. And yeah, you could do you know the other cool stuff there like buy a t-shirt or give us a donation or whatever. But more importantly, if you like this episode, review it. First, <laughs> First of all, sp- uh, spread the word of nerd and also review it. Exactly. Reviewing it on iTunes helps us. And uh, Stitcher. Gain, and Stitcher as well. Yeah. But and I'm going to keep interrupting review- Brian because I wanted to say something. Sorry, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> but more importantly, iTunes, because it actually affects their search results. Yeah. The higher a rating a show is, the more likely it is to show up in your search results. And uh, we just want to say thank you. And since this is the episode that is coming out before Thanksgiving, as always, of course, have a happy and safe Thanksgiving. Yay. Uh, you know, Sarah's not a huge fan of turkey, so I know that she said have something else other than that. But and you know enjoy what? your family. Go out and kill your own turkey this year and, and use one of several great Aboriginal weapons to do it. You can use a boomerang, as you've learned today. You can use a spear. Uh, you could just strangle it with your bare hands, but do something different this year. Uh, I, I encourage it. I really do. And I want to say, before we end this episode... Or how about this? How about you <laughs> sub Turkey for Emu? 
Oh, that works too. Okay, I like that. It's you're gonna get a lot more meat out of that bird anyhow. Way more meat. Way more. Totally. You feed a whole village. Okay. <laughs> I do want to say that I, I really am looking forward to the, our next episode, to the part two of this, because I cannot wait to explore what Australia has become today, because it really is a fascinating country. My great-grandfather almost settled there. He enjoyed it so much. Uh, he almost settled in Darwin in the Northern Territory, and I have always wanted to visit, but again, I'm terrified of giant spiders and long plane flights. So I don't know if I ever will, but I cannot wait to explore some more of the modern history of this really amazing country and continent. You know, I'm looking forward to that too. And though it is that time, so until we meet again, stay nerdy, our listeners, and uh, tune into our next exciting episode on Australian history. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Good day. Later. Good day. Good day. Oh, God. Good day. You know, I think it's just getting offensive at this point. Good day. All you need to do is say the other phrase, and we've pretty much lost all credibility with our Australian listeners. Crikey! Let's throw another shrimp on the barbie. I just, I can't even.